Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, we have a wonderful bunch of guests today, and we're sitting here in New York City at the American Bar Association annual meeting and just finished listening to a exciting program called Protection of Sensitive Information is Every Lawyer's Business. Practical Solutions to Avoid Data Breaches. But we're going to talk about a lot of different privacy issues. And the first person we're talking to is Stephen Wu, who's a partner in the Silicon Valley law firm of Cook, Cobrick, and Wu, LLP. He advises clients concerning e-discovery, electronic records retention, digital evidence, and legal matters relating to information security, privacy, and commerce. His litigation practice also includes intellectual property, and general litigation matters. He's extremely articulate. We have a lot more about him on our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. He's wonderful, and thank you for joining us this morning, I guess. It's still this morning. Yes, thank you for having me, Mari. I appreciate it. Well, Stephen, you were fantastic this morning and very articulate, and I can't even understand what you were talking about. Why don't you share with us some of the, the trends that you see and the concerns that people should have nowadays with this information security and privacy? Well, Mari, one of the things that we're seeing these days is that we're undergoing a transformation in our society. People are using information much more than they used to. People have not only got computers, but they're also starting to connect to each other through the Internet much more than they have in the past. In the future, what we're going to see is people will have ubiquitous access to computing power. That is, wherever they are, they will have some kind of mobile device, maybe even something that you wear, that you will be able to use computing power. And you will be able to have ubiquitous network connectivity. So no matter where you are, you will have all access to all of the information that you need to conduct your business or conduct your personal life. So with that increase of activity on the Internet and through all the computing devices you have, you have increasing vulnerability to security threats. That means you need to protect the information that you are accessing. 
We're also seeing from a business perspective, businesses moving the business processes of generating information, storing that information from their PCs, from their servers in the back room of their office to the cloud. When I'm speaking about cloud computing, what I'm talking about is having devices on the internet through some service provider that you don't know where it happens to be, doing the processing for you. So instead of having Microsoft Office loaded on your laptop, you may have a Google word processor that is actually running on a Google computer somewhere that you don't know that may in fact be halfway around the world. From a business perspective, that means if your data is stored in the what we call the cloud, the internet, that information may be moving back and forth even halfway across the world in an instant. You may not even know where that information is. There may be five copies of that information. Those five copies may be in five separate data centers located in various parts of the world. That means that there are people touching your data in different parts of the world. We're also seeing an increasing trend towards outsourcing of services. So businesses are saying, I don't want to deal with that complexity in my company. I would like some service provider to give me that business. Maybe that service provider is even offshore in India or the Philippines or some other country. That means that that information could be touched by people who are in foreign countries with perhaps fewer controls by way of rule of law than we have here in the United States, creating greater risks for the business. So you're scaring the heck out of those people who are listening to this because it sounds like with all of our information beyond our control, how do we deal with that risk? We need to have a comprehensive program. As a business, if you're running a business, you need to have a comprehensive security program. That security program not doesn't just cover the technology that's used to protect your information. Let's not focus just on the machines and the software. We actually have to focus on the people and the processes that are used to do our business and to operate our business. When I talk about people, I mean personnel protections, making sure that one person can't do all of the things it needs to do to breach the security of information. We have dual control or multi-person control over information. Background checks to make sure that we are hiring people who are competent, who do the job that they're supposed to do and don't have a criminal background. Right, because a lot of the times we find out that the dirty insiders actually get a job in a bank or get a job in a place where they can access this information. That is their whole sole purpose. You know, we've had big data breaches in, in Orange County and big criminal prosecutions that we found out people were working in the the brokerage industry and they were working in banks so that's exactly right those background checks are good but but you know this is the kind of crime that maybe maybe you have a good background but maybe you got into some trouble how are you going to find out about those people who never had a criminal background before but then suddenly have this opportunity to do this and there's big money right and and information can walk out even on an iPod I mean, right. you can, it could you, be negligent. It could be anything. Yeah, yeah. On a thumb drive or an iPod, you can walk out with information. If a person doesn't an have iPhone, a... An iPhone, maybe. An <laughs> iPhone. If a, criminal, if a person doesn't have a criminal background, that person, you, there, that's no guarantee that the person will do the job well and not walk off with information. Exactly. So we have other procedures in place to make sure that we are checking on what people do. There's accountability. There is auditing to make sure that, that we are looking at the system to ensure that the information is not walking off. We may help use the help of technology to see if breaches are occurring. So for example, there is some software where if I begin to mail out 
using my webmail account some confidential information in the company, an alarm goes off. Great. Or maybe even the technology stops that transfer from occurring. Or a thumb drive. Maybe that there's also like an alarm for these thumb drives. An I've alarm. seen that, yeah. Or software that it, when I put the thumb drive in and begin the copying operation, it can even shut down the computer remotely. Mm, so clear. technology can help. It's not the magic bullet, but it can help. Right. So as a lawyer, how do you advise your clients? What do you say to them about when you come into, let's say, a, a smaller, medium-sized business? I tell them that they need to be aware, first of all, of the requirements that they have for protecting information. In California, we have laws that say if you have certain kinds of personal information, then you have an obligation to protect that information using reasonable security controls. In addition, if you find that that information of your customer was compromised, you have an obligation to take the time and expense to notify that customer if that information is compromised. So first of all, you need to understand the legal background of the industry that you're in and the California requirements for information security. Then you need to find out what are the threats to your particular business. What kinds of things could happen to your business? Where is your business particularly vulnerable with regard to security? Hire a security professional to help you in the process of risk assessment. If you don't understand the risk that you are facing, whatever countermeasures you put into place will be possibly a waste of money. Exactly. You need to understand how bad is the threat before you spend money to solve that threat. Because maybe you don't have that threat or all, at all, or maybe you can use cheaper measures to control the threat. Once you understand your risk, then you can go through the process of sorting out the real risk to those threats. What vulnerabilities do you have? And then work together with an information security professional and your legal counsel to find the best countermeasures that are cost effective for your business to implement and make sure that you are dealing with the vulnerabilities and threats that face your particular business. Put those into place, then make sure that you are auditing, doing an assessment to find that out whether people are actually implementing the program you put into place, and then hold people accountable. If you have employees who are breaching security, you need to discipline those employees and maybe even up to terminating them. All right. How difficult is it to terminate somebody who's been working inside, you know, to, uh, I mean, how would you know what's going on? Is it through the audit trails that Th you would find Through them? the assessments and audits. You right. find out whether somebody has breached security then you hold them accountable. California is an at-will employment state. Right. So that means you can fire them if they breach the security of your systems. Right. You were talking before we started about some virtual worlds. or what, Tell us about the virtual businesses or whatever. <laughs> what was it that you were talking about? The I, I was talking about the 3D Internet. Okay, that is today 3D. when you look at an Internet website, what you're seeing is essentially something akin to a magazine page on paper. Right. You can flip through pages. Maybe there's an embedded video. Maybe there are images on it. But essentially what you're looking at is akin to a magazine article right. online. Right. What we're going to move to in the next decades in the next years and decades, and we already are starting this process, is moving to 3D Internet applications, yeah. where I have a small cartoon character called an avatar that allows me to walk around uh, in what appears to be a world that I view on my computer that's accessed through the Internet so that I can sit by a fountain and have a, a cup of coffee with you. <laughs> I can walk down by the lake shore and hear the birds in the air, look at the sunset as we're we're chatting with each other. You may be in Brazil while I'm in Los Angeles. Wow. You may be in Portugal. You may be in Japan. I have friends from all over the world on a particular application called Second Life. Yeah. In Second Life, we have business organizations. 
we have the purchase and sale of real estate. People are making a living helping others get set up with their real estate on Second Life, purchase and sale real estate, lease real estate, uh, create virtual goods like clothing, uh, vehicles, uh, any other product that you might want to make in the real world, you can make something equivalent in the virtual world and sell that product. Now, currently, you can't get the kind of money that you can for physical products, but over time, that will change. Okay, so, so help me understand. Why would I want a virtual product instead of a real product? Because I can share that virtual product with somebody halfway around the world without having to be physically next to them. So, for example, I may have um, a desire to meet people who have an interest in, say, the German language. Okay. I may set up a German language party site where I invite people to my discotheque and we all dance on the dance floor and I have some beautiful artwork on the walls. People who are actually in Germany, while I'm in the Los Angeles area, people who are in Germany can see my artwork oh. and, and enjoy it with me without having to travel to Los Angeles to see right, it. Right, right. And I like the idea of if I want to buy some property on the East Coast and I live on the West Coast, I can actually walk the whole property is what you're saying and see what it is and, and see if I want to buy it. Well, that it? doesn't exist on Second Life, but there's no reason why that application couldn't occur where you can have a, a walkthrough of physical real estate. Nobody's created that application. I'm hearing a business opportunity <laughs> as we speak, <laughs> but uh, there's no reason why you couldn't set up a site like that to do that. So Second Life, are you using Second Life right now? I mean, is that actually being I used? I could get it up and running on the computer sitting next to us oh, if you wow, like. Oh, wow, we're going to have to do that. So what are some of the technology and privacy implications? What are the, some of the legal ramifications of using that? Well, we have the same kind of issues on Second Life or any virtual world that you might have on a Facebook or MySpace. Okay. That is, how, what kind of information do you as a user provide to the application? What can other users see? What kind of protection is being provided that information by the company that's hosting the application? All of the issues that you would see in MySpace or Facebook would also exist for 3D Internet sites. And what are the implications I worry about MySpace and all of these social networking sites for people who want to get a job in the future. My kids are in their 20s, and I worry about them having MySpace, and how might that come back to hurt them? I know I actually had an interview with a lawyer who said he was going to hire a young lawyer, and then when he saw the MySpace, some of the pictures on MySpace, decided not to do that. What about that issue? That issue is being talked about in legal circles. I was at the Practicing Law Institute on Privacy and Security Law. I was on the faculty in June, and that very topic came up. And the employment lawyers who were on the panel were asked the question, do you look or don't you look as an employer? Because you also have, as an employer, issues of whether you are discriminating against somebody based on religion or gender or other protected class. Right, if you look on some of these things and you find out that this person has a particular religion that you think is perhaps not in the mainstream, and you don't hire that person, that person might use the basis of you having looked at their Facebook or MySpace page to claim discrimination. So there is a debate among employers whether to look or not to look. But from the employee perspective, remember that anything you put up there is fair game for other people to see. So, for example, on my Facebook page, it's, it's professional. Right. It's all of the things having to do with my law firm and with me as a lawyer. I don't put up any personal pictures. I don't put up any personal information about where I live or the people I hang out with or anything like that. 
Now let's move to the 3D internet, for example. In Second Life, there are activities, for example, you can be an exotic dancer in Second Life. And there are many people who make a living as an exotic dancer in Second Life. But If, not in the real life. But saying. not in real life. <laughs> not necessarily in real life. So imagine that you are an exotic dancer or so in the world's oldest profession. So there's a little cartoon that looks like Mari or Steve? Yes. Or not like necessarily. Oh, it could, it And you can switch genders. Like it may not look like anything like you. And you may have an activity in Second Life, such as being an exotic dancer or engaging in the world's oldest profession in Second Life. And if you are attempting to find a job and somebody is aware of your Second Life activities, the same issues that are arising in MySpace with regard to pictures of your partying life yeah. in the real world could apply to your Second Life activities. That's pretty terrifying. So, so Second Life is all about fantasy, is, I mean, in terms of like being able to be a fantasy person? There is some aspect of fantasy to uh, some groups of people who are on Second Life. Not everybody is involved in fantasy. So, for example, when I am on Second Life, I am a member of the SL Bar Association in Second Life, and I'm actually a candidate for president of the SL Bar Association. What is SL? Security? SL means Second Life. Oh, Second Life. Okay, yes. okay, okay, okay. So it, uh, this is a group formerly known as the Second Life Bar Association, but for trademark <laughs> reasons, the Linden Lab folks have asked people not to use Second Life in their, the names of their organizations. So we switched the name to SL Bar Association. Okay, so what are you, you going to do if you get elected to be the SL What I plan to do is help move the SL Bar Association to the next level in terms of its visibility in the community as a large, both in Second Life as well as outside of Second Life, to help study the intersection of law and technology as it relates to virtual worlds and the 3D Internet, and to provide more benefits to our members in the Bar Association. More connections, more people, greater access to legal information, For example, providing forms for transactions that people might conduct in Second Life. Provide them model contracts, things like mm -hmm. that. And provide them networking opportunities and maybe even employment opportunities or client development opportunities. So those are the kinds of things that I plan to do if I became president of SL Bar Association. Steve, how did you get to be such a techie <laughs> and, and a lawyer? <laughs> I began uh, as a high school student. My mother bought a TRS-80 Model 2 computer in 1979. And I taught myself how to program in BASIC. And I programmed some and modified some games and also programmed my own games. Continued to take some computing technology courses in college, but it was before the day and age even of computer law. So I, ha I wanted to become a lawyer, but I did not know that you could combine an interest in law on one hand and computers and technology on the other until I actually entered law school. I was a major in political science and philosophy, actually, in college. <laughs> and was the president of the philosophy club at the University of Pittsburgh. But when I entered Harvard Law School, I found out that actually it is possible to see litigation in the computer law area. And when I began to see these cases, I decided to write my third year paper on computer law, computer law copyright cases in particular. And then after I left law school, I began to cultivate an interest in computer law and tried to get as many computer law cases as I could, even switched to another firm because I thought it would be better in terms of more exposure to computer law. And then in about 1994, I heard about this thing called the Internet. <laughs> I thought it would be a tremendous opportunity, but there really wasn't that much opportunity in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But I heard of a, a little-known company called VeriSign Incorporated, which became the security giant right. that provides the digital certificates that 
create uh, the secure sockets layer encryption for people to right. shop on Amazon or any other secure site. I heard about this company in 1996. I pursued an opportunity with the company. I ended up becoming the company's second in-house lawyer. When I joined VeriSign, I learned from the founding fathers of right. digital certification services what the technology was all about and just continued to pursue my interest in technology. Well, there's that whole issue of security versus privacy, and you seem to know a lot about both, and you actually handle privacy issues in your law firm as well as security issues, correct? Correct. What do you think is going to happen in terms of privacy? You know, some people say that, oh, privacy is out, forget it, you know, it's over with, just let it be. What are your thoughts about privacy? Where are we going with privacy? It's hard to look into the crystal ball. But my feeling about these issues is that people will be changing their social mores and their social customs to accommodate the wired world. Mm -hmm. We will have a different view about the borders between what's private and what's public. The younger generation of folks, the people who are in high school and college now, those folks will have a completely different view of privacy than what we as older folks have they will be seeing the world in a completely different way. They will feel much more comfortable with the sharing of information. So I believe the borders of privacy will be scaled back and a lot of stuff that we in older generations think of as private information will be fair game for the younger generation. So I, I do believe that we will have a lot less what we would consider the traditional privacy. But there may be better solutions that people have for controlling their privacy. Perhaps through the use of technology, we can have fine-grained control over who sees what pieces of private information and perhaps give us a greater feeling of empowerment over the information that we do have and the, the spheres of privacy that we have left. You know, Steve, I get calls from young people as well as older people about some scary stuff that's happening on the Internet, whether, especially with regard to different types of identity theft, whether it's blogging where someone is pretending to be someone else and they're blogging and they're saying things that could hurt the business maybe because they someone is has revenge and they want to get the other person who works at the company or I had a woman recently call me who is a model and she's a very respected model and she saw that her picture was used with a different name and really defamed her in many different websites. What about that kind of stuff? I mean, we have such a loss of control of our personal identifying information. It's a tremendous issue. I do, we don't have solutions to that problem right now. Well, Online you should, defamation. Steve, you're, the, you're the techie. <laughs> I, let, let me talk about the long run in a second, okay. but let me talk about the short run threat. That is, um, I was reading a story about some Yale law students. There is a site that talks about gossip having to do with college students and, and graduate students. And some people were talking about how these law students were engaging in activities that were unsavory, shall we say. I'm, yes. putting, it, I'm putting it diplomatically. Yes. <laughs> these folks were unable, the folks who were victims of this defamation, were unable to get summer jobs as law students. And if you don't get a summer job as a law student, it's hard to get a permanent job as a law student. Essentially, these folks' career careers are in jeopardy. They tried to sue to find out the identity of the people that had done this, right. and they're having a difficult time right now finding out the identity of the people who had done this. I don't have a solution, as I sit here today, as to what, what they can do. Um, in addition, you were talking about this model. I mean, perhaps even a worse scenario from a model's perspective is, what if that person took a photo of that model, changed it using Photoshop right. uh, to maybe 
you know, adding 10 pounds of weight onto this person right, or, right. you know, making this person look a, a little bit more haggard right. and then saying this is what this person looks like without makeup, right. even if it's not true. You could do exactly. a lot of things with Photoshop these days. That person's reputation as a model might be ruined because of this. And because people have, if you use the proper techniques, have anonymity over the Internet, you right. may not be able to even have a lawsuit against the people because you can't find out who it is who did this to you. Right. So you these may are not concerns. You're able to find out where it is. You know, I think that's one of the issues about if information is being collected about us all the time. You know, I'm going to have your picture on our website, right? But you're going to know it. But who knows who would copy that and put it somewhere else? How do we know? I mean, for example, with, with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, we can find out what's collected about us financially for credit. But how do we know what else is being collected and profiled about us? Every, it's not transparent. What kind of legislation might we need so that we can at least know what is being collected about us and, and correct it? You in, know, I mean, in, that's a huge issue. In Europe, if you are collecting private information about people, you need to provide them with certain privacy rights. We've resisted that in large part in the political climate that we've had that's fairly anti-regulation during the current administration. We've had a fair, fair amount of resistance to more regulation. But if the administration changes and we've got a democratic administration, then you may see increasing privacy regulations. People have always talked about the prospects for a comprehensive privacy regime in the United States, and it doesn't seem to have... Uh, uh, I don't think it's possible if we were to have a McCain administration, but um, perhaps if we had an Obama administration, you might see that. But even then, it, it, it's difficult in our, in our political culture to have that. But eventually, people may get sick of these kinds of stories that you're talking about and may want to change things. I would also say, going back to the point about what do you see in the long run, yes. over the long run, if we have security technologies that provide... Uh, uh, controls over authentication and integrity. And when I mean authentication from an information security professional's perspective. Authentication says, does this information come from the person who it purports to come from? Right. Or integrity, has this information changed since it was created, for example? If people know to avoid information that's coming on the Internet that doesn't have authentication or integrity, as a social matter, if people are trained to avoid information that doesn't have those security controls associated with it, then perhaps people will say, oh, that's just a Photoshop of somebody's right. picture, or right. that information's not reliable, so I will ignore it. I mean, if we, if we have um, the use of technology like digital signature technology, then that may help to mitigate some of the problem. But I think over the next five, ten years, the risk of online defamation and anonymity is not going to go away. Right. And I think when you have all these companies that have collected information, and a lot of that information is wrong. Again, I deal with identity theft victims all the time, and people will say, I never lived at that address. A big company that has collected that, a big major financial company that has given out credit cards or whatever, is the databases are filled with errors. Just that's the problem. How do, if we had some way where every individual could find out all the profiling in one central place, and then we would have the ability to correct and authenticate ourselves, then maybe we could clean it up. But right now, they're all a mess. Yes. I'm, in Europe, you would have a right, if somebody was collecting information about you, to correct incorrect information. Right. If there were some kind of notification requirement to say, 
a company that has private information about you has to notify you that it has that information and give you the right to correct that information, that would help address the problem that you're speaking about. As far as a central repository is concerned, you may find people saying you're creating a potential security risk by having an aggregator of all the information about you, or at least links to information about you. Well, it's already existing, though. Think of ChoicePoint. Think of Axiom. It's already out there. It's just not transparent. There well, there are, are there are multiple places where that exists. If we had one central database to say all the choice points of the world, all of the axioms of the world, have to then in turn notify some central bureau government or otherwise, that it has this certain information about you or here's what kind of information it has about you, then that might create in the government space a security risk of, of yeah. having a centralized uh, point of information that could be abused. Well, we already have that really with the, with the three credit bureaus. They have a central repository of all of our financial information, not all of it, but at least the stuff that's reported for credit bureaus. It doesn't have to be a federal governmental I entity, but some way that we can get all that information under some kind of a, a right as consumers because mm -hmm. there's just so much out there that is just, we have no idea. I do a Google alert now for myself to find out any time my name is coming up, and it's scary when I see it's been in a blog. And I quickly go and click on that URL, but I think that's the, the frightening part is we don't know what all is out there about us or our businesses. Well, I think you could have a notification requirement that I was mentioning earlier in which companies that collect the information about you have a duty to notify you of that. That way you can address it directly with the company and correct any inaccuracies. Right, so that, that would have to be a law. Uh, yes. Would that be have to be a law in our that country? That would have to be a law. Well, we appreciate that. I know you have another meeting to go to. And, yes, um, I do. And so I want to just thank you. We've been speaking here with Stephen Wu, who is a partner with Cook, Cobrick, and Wu LLP in Los Altos, California. So thank you so much. We're going to be watching all the great stuff that you do, and we will have your website on our website. Thank you, Mari. I appreciate it. We're speaking now with Lucy Thompson. JDMS, who's a senior engineer and information security officer and with a major corporation in Virginia. Lucy, thank you so much. You did a great job this morning. We really enjoyed. We're still sitting here in New York City at the Hilton. Tell us what you do and tell us what's going on and all the work that you're doing. I work for a very large technology company with a global presence. I do privacy impact assessments and I work in a security group. So um, we focus on trying to make people's information systems safer and trying to help companies analyze their information to figure out ways to protect it. Um, and I, for this program on uh, data breaches, I analyzed the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse data breach database. And I did some interesting, uh, conclude, I found some interesting conclusions. Over the last four years, there were um, more than 750 reported data breaches. And some interesting information came out. I determined that several types of organizations tend to have the most data breaches. Educational institutions are top on the list, universities in particular, and some state and local school districts, and then also um, educational institutions, universities um, are a problem, and financial institutions. And it appears that 
companies with a culture of trust where information is shared very uh, openly and that don't have good discipline in terms of developing information security systems seem to have the most data breaches. So you're saying that basically these educational institutions really are not focusing on security and putting forth the kind of energy and money into secure systems. That's right. And those usually educational institutions, universities are very open places where students and faculty share information and research is um, communicated openly. So I think they're just not, haven't really adopted very strong information security controls. You know, I remember years ago, and, and it still happens in many universities, is that the social security number is the ID number. And in California, several years ago, we passed a law that said that no educational institution could use the social security number as the ID number. But apparently, they're still using it and in many other places, and of course when these data breaches occur, the, the SSN is revealed. Yeah, SSNs are um, frequently revealed. And another um, source of data breaches are websites where social security numbers and other sensitive information is posted, um, usually by mistake, but that just shouldn't happen in an or organization that thinks about security in a thoughtful way. So tell us about these privacy assessments. When you go in and do a privacy assessment, you do that for government en entities as yes, well? Yes, yes. Well, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. I'm also um, the consumer privacy ombudsman for four bankruptcy courts. Oh. Um, under the new bankruptcy code, if an organization is going to be selling sensitive personally identifiable information in a bankruptcy proceeding, um, a, a consumer privacy ombudsman needs to be appointed by the U.S. trustee upon the order of the court. And then I oversee the sale of the records. So I analyze... So let me ask you something, Lucy. If I had given my information to a company and their privacy policy said that they would never sell it, what happens in bankruptcy? Can they sell it, even though they told me in their privacy policy that they were never going to sell it? If the privacy policy says they won't sell it, then they can't transfer it. Okay. And we develop approaches so that sometimes they notify the uh, customers or the individuals in the database that this information could be transferred and then they give the individuals an opportunity to opt out of the transfer. So first we look at the privacy policy, the organization that's bankrupt, and we look at what types of protections the individuals are being provided. And then we make sure that the organization follows that privacy policy and then sometimes we come up with ways to even strengthen the privacy protections. With, with the and new company that buys it, you mean? The new company that buys it has to be a qualified buyer, which means they have to be in the same line of business as the original company, and they have to be um, very knowledgeable about how to handle personally identifiable records, and they have to have a privacy policy that's consistent with or stronger than the privacy policy oh. of the bankrupt organization. Um, and I usually analyze, I start by doing an inventory of the personally identifiable records and then talk to the new buyer and the seller about whether they really need to keep the records. Oh. In the last case that I did, 
they actually destroyed 90% of the records because they were great record keepers and they had too much personally <laughs> identifiable information about consumers and employees going back 15 years. <sighs> and that included bank records, credit card numbers, bank account numbers, and they really didn't need it. So uh, supervised by um, the trustee, um, they agreed to actually professionally destroy the records oh, so great. everybody was very happy with that um, with that um, resolution of the case and the consumers were definitely protected absolutely yeah so so you work as an ombudsman you're kind of the go-between between, between right. the the bankrupt organization and the buyer, and then I do a report to the court in each case, analyzing the privacy issues and advising the court on how to make sure that the consumer records are protected. You know, bankruptcy court, I remember actually testifying at the FTC because in, in California it used to be in, you could walk into a bankruptcy court and file bankruptcy and not show any identification. And we were finding that there were a lot of victims of identity theft for bankruptcy. And people would say, well, why in the world would there be bankruptcy? And that's because if you're listening and you don't know, you cannot be foreclosed upon and right. you cannot be evicted. So sometimes people will get an apartment right. and using somebody else's name. So, you know, we actually changed that law. But there is a lot of sensitive information when somebody is filing bankruptcy, and especially with our economy, what protections are there in the bankruptcy court about our sensitive account numbers, et cetera. Well, the, the courts that I work with are federal bankruptcy cases, and this <clears throat> new law is amendments to the bankruptcy code that require the appointment of a consumer privacy ombudsman in every case where personally identifiable records are going to be sold or transferred. So there's pretty substantial protections now. Right. And I use the expertise that I've um, gained in doing privacy impact assessments for the government in particular. And there's actually a number of very important questions that we look at when we analyze privacy issues. We look at how the what information exists that's personally identifiable, what's sensitive, how it's going to be used, how it's shared, what kind of information security is um, placed on the records. Um, so there's a very, there's a series of about 10 very important uh, questions that we address. And I do a written report in each case. Um, and then uh, we look at the records to see whether they need to be kept, whether, whether they can be, um, whether they are essential. And a lot of times once the privacy impact is done, uh, we can actually get rid of records or the organization can keep fewer records than they would have otherwise thought they needed. So Lucy, what, you know, we have a lot of people who are driving by in Orange County that are medium, small, even larger businesses, and we have a lot of students, and we're sitting here on the campus at the University of California, Irvine, when people are listening to this. So what should people do up to do a privacy assessment? Is there some website that gives you guidance if you want to do it for yourself? 
if you can't afford to get a privacy assessment by a large company? Well, there's a good model that the government has adopted. I first worked doing the IRS modernization project. The IRS was in the forefront, actually, of developing an approach to doing a privacy impact assessment. And a federal law required that that approach was adopted among all the federal agencies. So interested individuals can go to the website of the Department of Homeland Security and look for the privacy office and the questions to be addressed are actually there on that website. And there's instructions and there's guidance. So it's really a good starting point for people to do a privacy impact assessment for their organization. And that gives them the guidelines with the questions to answer. Yes. And then they can kind of use that as their own guide. Absolutely. And that can be adapted for um, commercial, private organizations. And it gives you a really solid foundation. So and that's Homeland Security. It's, it's dep U U.S. Department of Homeland Security. It's www www.dhs.gov slash privacy. Very good. So what do you see as the, some of the important issues in privacy since that's your, your bag. Right. right well, one issue that's of particular interest to me is electronic health records. Nice. Um, there's some really good reasons medically why electronic health records are going to benefit um, people and it's good for doctors and good for the health profession and the um, White House issued an executive order saying that they mandated that uh, that all medical records be converted to electronic form by um, 2012 um, but there's some very serious privacy issues um, as data becomes aggregated into large databases it can be more vulnerable um, three companies just started um, offerings for establishing personal uh, accounts for medical records, Google, Revolution Health, and Microsoft. And on their websites, people can establish accounts which allow them to collect all their health records in one place. And people should read their privacy policies very carefully because the records um, once they're transferred or once they're um, shared with other people, they really lose the privacy protections that are established in those websites. Lucy, you wrote an article or a white paper about this? I did. Is, is there a place that we can, people who um, are interested, they can see it or read it? I, I could um, send it to you and you could post it. Um, I work, for, I am a writer for the International Association of Privacy Professionals, which is... I'm a is, member of that. I'm a CIPP. Yeah, well, I'm a CIPP slash G, which and is... I, I know the government, yeah. 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 So I write for them, and they just did a um, very nice um, issue of their magazine on electronic health records. So, oh, there's so you did some, an article for that? Yes. Yeah. I wrote about the, um, the three companies that have started um, developing electronic health records accounts for individuals. Okay, so if you send it to me, I, then I will. can make it available to anybody Great. and I'd like to read it. Is, Great. Did it come out in the, the it, newsletter yet? Yes, it's this month's newsletter. Okay, okay. well, terrific. Great. Well, we appreciate all you're doing in privacy and thank you for a great program today. Well, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Now, moving on to a brilliant security gentleman that I read his posts on a listserv that I'm on and I finally got to meet him in person today. He also was one of the great presenters in this program. His name is Hoyt Kesterson II. 
and he is a consultant with CNC Consulting out of Glendale, Arizona. Thank you so much for talking with us. So I learned a lot today. You were giving some great definitions and talking about security. Why don't you talk to my audience about some of the really important things that they need to do to protect their companies, whether it's small, medium, or large, from security breaches? Okay. Security breaches uh, basically means that you should protect, uh, you should practice good computing habits, I like to say. In other words, long before there were any of these laws that kind of punished you for not doing things right, you should have been doing things right. And I typically l list these as the fact that, number one, you should be authenticating to the best of your ability anyone who checks who is in your system. So this is everyone who's permitted to connect into your system. Okay, so let's stop on that. That's a really important thing, authentication. How do you suggest that we authenticate? Well, I suggest that you move beyond passwords because uh, although it still seems to be working well for your Amazon account and so forth, uh, I think you have to look at probably how, uh, how powerful the person is going to be on your system, how privileged the person is going to be on your system when they, when they successfully connect. And the more privileges a person has, I think the stronger the authentication techniques you should use. So therefore, when you have administrators who connect into your system, particularly because in today, administrators will connect in remotely. They do it for a variety of reasons. Number one is because not everyone is in the office anymore. But even so, you may have an administrator who's responsible for sites that are all over the United States or all over the world, and they're going to do remote connection. So here you have someone that once they get connected into a system has great power because they are the administrators. And so uh, you, need to do, you need to ensure that these people connect in in, 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 a, in a really rigorous way. And there's an old technique, comes back from the military, it's called inf it's the Orange Book, the, the Rainbow Series of books. And they basically talked about what you should be doing in passwords some of the things I agree with. Uh, I agree with the uh, reasonably complex passwords. I agree with this thing called n-factor authentication, which basically it's, it's, it's called three-factor. And it's something you know, like a password, uh, something you physically have, like a token, or something you physically are, a biometric, which would be like a voice print or a thumbprint. Although I always like to be very careful about biometrics because, as I keep trying to tell people, biometrics aren't secrets, okay? There's something you have, but there's something that someone can replay very easily, too, if you don't watch out. So the classic example to me is two-factor two authentication, which is where someone would have, like, a token. And there, there are many varieties. Uh, Secure ID is one of the more famous ones where, effectively, this thing will display a numeric value. And when you connect into a system, not only do you supply a password, but you also supply the value that's being displayed on this token. And the system is able to say, well, the only card that would be displaying that value right now is card X, and that does belong to that person. So I now have great confidence that that's who that is. And so that's what you do, I think. And, and, and we're seeing this in some companies, like in commodity companies that have customers that, that make important, uh, make very large things. And so uh, in my talk, I, I, I didn't get as much chance to say about risk analysis as you should, as I could, but uh, I, I mentioned this uh, about this, you know, a $1,000 lock and a $10 chain. You really only have $10 worth of security. 
And so before you start throwing security everywhere, you need to really do, you need to do a study about what you need to do, uh, what needs to happen. And one of the things you should be sure, sure that you're doing is that you're putting the money in where there's the most risk. And therefore, would I give tokens to everyone that works in the company? No, because that's expensive. But would I give tokens to anyone who has a great amount of privilege within the company? So yes. So senior executives, okay, because I want to be able to identify them, administrators, and other people. And then I would make certain that once people have gotten beyond the perimeter, have gotten into the system, that they're not allowed to go everywhere. You know, right. that basically the, the, whole, the whole idea is that you do defense and depth, and that doesn't, just doesn't mean firewalls behind firewalls behind firewalls. It means that once you get into a system and you're authenticated, that every place you're going to go and what you're allowed to do is controlled by a set of privileges and you work on a principle of least privilege, which means you're denied everything until you're explicitly granted permission to do it. So you have a very controlled environment about what's going on. And that there's audit trails so that, that your little token is identifiable only to you, right? Yes, and so that, that somebody knows if I have a privilege, that I got in there and, and who got in there and when they got in there. Exactly, because one, one of the things that's important is that if you can actually prove who, who is, then often the fact that you're keeping good track of what that person is doing, because you have, you have this problem of insiders where people do things they shouldn't do, and uh, you sometimes people have, <laughs> people, people have emotional problems that cause them to do things that they wouldn't normally do. They have financial problems that cause them to do things they wouldn't do. Or they're just so, curious, like are, what we've are, seen are, with, you know, healthcare industry. Are, are, yeah. are, are, yes, they're just curious. Or even just think recently the people who work for the passport office, who just basically, they were they contractors. Yeah. And, they, and out of curiosity, they went and looked at the things. And so, I mean, we are, you know, we're very closely related to monkeys and, <laughs> and, 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 and therefore overly curious, I think. So, yes, basically, you, you one of the principles is that uh, privilege is always based on, a, on, a, on, a, on an exact need, a business need. And this is why you, 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 before you start laying technology out, you, you have to know what it is you're protecting, and you have to know who has access to it, what kind of access they have. And until you do that, you really can't lay out the kinds of security protections you're going put, to put in place and lay them out efficiently, because otherwise you'll spend a, a lot of money putting on a lock on a you know on the on the front door and yet you know All the, the back, back doors, doors are window, open. yeah Wait, let me ask you something though you know we have a lot of people who are driving by that are not big companies and they can't necessarily afford your services so what do you say for the mom and pops what do you say for the person who has a maybe an online business they have a lot of data and they can collect you know billions of pieces of insensitive information. What can they do? I mean, it's almost overwhelming. I read somewhere that 70% of, of all businesses in America are small businesses. So what about those 70%? What can they do? Well, then we go to my, my thing about, you know, why do you have this information? Uh, if you're really a small business, there's no reason for you to keep the information. It, you, you, you know, you, it's not like you're Amazon.com and you're really trying to entice me to come back many, many times with a lot of people and easily, you know, not have to enter my credit card numbers in or anything else. Well, you, you could be an Internet company that sells some kind of, uh, you know, uh, health care product. But, but if you're yeah. a small business, mm -hmm. then collect the information again. 
if you want to keep track of a customer, mm -hmm. give them a customer name, and, but always make them re-enter their credit card information. Right. Don't you you can you can keep customer histories without keeping sensitive information. Mm -hmm. Business has gotten lazy. I mean, they they said, okay, I need an ID. Rather than inventing an ID of my own, I use a social security number or mm -hmm. I use a credit card number. Uh, there was this thing called SET, Secure Electronic Transaction, that Visa actually tried to put in place probably 10 years ago. And if they had succeeded, we wouldn't have this fraud that we have today. And one of the what, things. What did it do? Well, it actually did a variety of things, but one of the things it did, it made it so the, that the merchant would not even know what the credit card number is. It would pass through and it would be authenticated, but the merchant would never have it. And the other interesting thing that it did is it. It, it could also conceal what had actually been purchased, so there were some privacy things here. And who were the two people who fought against this? Number one, the merchants, who said, no, we keep track of our customers with credit card numbers, okay? Well, how and about the when, when there's returns? I think that might have been an issue. Is they, but, they the, need but, but the point is, is you could assign a, a, a random number to any transaction sure. and use that number to go back. You don't need to use the credit card. Exactly. And in fact, you see variations of this technique now when they talk about these one-time charge numbers. Right. These techniques have always been there. It is pure laziness. I would argue that the smartest thing that a small business could do is don't keep this stuff. And, and I doubt that you'll lose your customers if you make them re-enter a credit card number again. You and, know, that's and, really and, and, right. I, you know, I, as a small, as an attorney, I take credit cards. And also, you know, we, we sell my legal books. And I'll tell you something. We always shred immediately after we enter it in. That immediately. And people will say, just charge my credit card again. And I said, I don't keep that. We shred it every single time. So you're right. That is, if you don't have it, you don't have to worry about it getting lost. That's always my first rule. Can't lose data you don't have. And don't collect more than you don't need. Exactly. Exactly. So what else do you tell people? Uh, well, I also I, I basically you know, I basically tell them that you know you minimize the amount of data you're going to protect. Then once you have identified the data you do need, and I point out to you that sometimes the data you want isn't uh, the data you're trying to protect isn't your customer's data. It's your own data. It's your own. Str I mean, the number of companies that you see executives running around on on briefcases with. Uh, Year, with, the, with their strategies for the next year or products they're going to come out with, our pricing, our customer list. Right. These, these are sensitive data sure. too. They're, they're, not, they're not held by, regu they're not by regulation sensitive, although I must admit that Sarbanes could make a pitch that uh, you lose stuff like that, you affect the financial viability of exactly. your company, so you should be careful about it. But it, again, it's, it, the techniques are there to, to handle this thing. And, and some people will always say, and myself included, I could say, well, that's not as good a security as it could be. Mm -hmm. But the, my, I'm willing to let people do reasonable security and, and hope that it just gets better and better and better. Uh, right now, it seems that a lot of people look at it and they say, well, if I really wanted to do this perfectly, it's just too much effort. So, okay, don't do it perfectly. Do you it know, as best you do, can. Do it as best as you can, and that'll be a lot better than nothing. You know, we talked about encryption, and I, and I thank you for trying to be as clear for those of us in the audience as you possibly could be, since it sounds like you're a mathematical genius, and, uh, you know, for all, all the algorithms. And um, I use, for example, and tell me how safe I am, I use the WinZip 256 encryption when I send an attachment to my clients. I never put anything sensitive in an email, but when I send a 
an attachment, I always am making sure that it is encrypted, and it's encrypted in the file, and it's encrypted when I send it through the WinZip 256 encryption. How safe am I? Well, how do you how how do you give them the password to unlock it? By phone. Uh, then then you're perfect. Oh yeah, I would never do it by email. Well, no. you're 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 unusual in that respect, and because I would refer, you know, I talk about that as like an out of band communication. The phone oh, thing. Oh God, no! And, you and, 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 and <laughs> that would be crazy. I, I, it's I, like giving the key, right? No, no. I excuse me. I've just <laughs> audited a business where what happens is that they actually will send an email with an encrypted file and another oh. a separate email, a separate email. And at least, you know, they say, well, at least it's a separate email. And my point is, if, if someone's no. intercepting your email traffic, they've got it. So, yeah, that becomes... That's I don't even do it on a cell phone. Yeah, and, <laughs> well, again, so, and, and the interesting thing is because you're a small business and you don't have to do it very frequently, this, this is a good technique to you. So we talk about things about elaborate key exchange mechanisms, PKI, all this other good stuff, but you don't have to do that. Okay, you, the reason you do that is because you're doing 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 or thousands of them a day and you can't do that. But if it's an infrequent operation, much like I said, if you're a small business that you wouldn't keep credit card information, you can encrypt things. Uh, one of the nicest products out there is Adobe Acrobat, the latest one professional. Because okay. it has really great crypto controls all built into it. And yeah, you can use it. They have these very nice tools. They have this uh, collaborative environment and everything. Mm -hmm. You can really go that way. Now, but is it you, real user-friendly for someone? Yes, it is. Okay. It is. It is. It's, it, it's basically one of those things where you can use it to the level that you need to use it. And the more things you need to do with it, then the more you have to know. But for example, I had to send a, I had to, I had done a security report and I did not have a way of getting this information to these people securely. And so I used Adobe Acrobat to, to basically create a file and much like you, I encrypted it. I encrypted it with uh, public key, with public key cryptography, but with quote like self-signed certificates. But that was okay. Now you got to go back and explain what that meant well, to my in, audience. In, in a normal in a number in a normal uh, PKI world, you have attestation by trusted third parties like Entrust or Verisign or something like mm -hmm. that, and they're the one who's swearing that this certificate is from Hoyt Kesterson. Right. Okay. But what I'm, what, when I, and, and that's really important if, in fact, I'm going to be going out to hundreds and thousands of people because I want those browsers to say, yeah, this is really Hoyt Kesterson. But no, I'm not in this situation. It's a direct communication between me and someone and your else. your client, right. And so I'm actually using a mechanism of PKI and certificates so I can actually have this very nice way of using public key cryptography to do the key establishment and handling and, and symmetric key to actually protect the stuff. And yet, at the same time, I don't have a I don't have the I don't have a, a, a need for this elaborate third-party trust mechanism, and so I can essentially, like you, call someone up on the phone and tell them that the magical word is Zixelproke, okay, right. and that they should type that in and they'll get that decrypted document. I couldn't do this to hundreds and hundreds of people, no. but I can do it to one once or twice a year. Right. Simplicity. Simpl My point is, is you can find simple ways to do things if you, for, for small businesses. Small businesses don't have to deploy large elaborate infrastructures and, uh, and they particularly don't have to do it if they really eliminate a lot of the data they're keeping around. Exactly. Well, Lloyd says we have about a minute left. Well, you're wonderful. We sure appreciate it. And we will hopefully be communicating through our listserv and uh, thank you so much for educating all of us you're oh, terrific thanks enjoyed it
Okay, good night. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy to download our podcasts, listen to archive interviews, and ask us questions about privacy so we can answer those for you. Thank you and good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.